Well, here we go with our first Christmas special. It's it's a shorter episode and it follows a slightly different form. So if you're new to Album Epitaph, please be sure to check out a different episode when you're done with this one to get a better sense of what we do. Also, I know there are a lot of people who don't like Christmas music out there. And well, for you, I can't say that this episode will change your mind, but I hope you might come out of it with a different appreciation for the songs. There are some cool things about the genre. Anyhow, as always, please subscribe and review when you can. It really does make a difference. And sincerely, Merry Christmas. Okay, that, that's good. Let's go. Album Epitaph is produced by the Noise Cancelling Group. This is Album Epitaph, a podcast that dives into the unheralded albums which represent an era, a moment, and explains why it mattered. Well, it all matters. Music matters. And in 1963, during Christmas music's golden age, when pop was stuck between Elvis and the Beatles, and when one of the fantastic weirdos in music history hit peak form, well, it was an era when a lot of things got frozen in time. On this episode, 1963 and the sound of the teenage soul, choreographed finger snaps, gunshots in the recording studio, and a Christmas miracle, all heard through the sounds of Phil Spector's classic album, A Christmas Gift for You. Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home, it's, it's the best song off Phil Spector's classic album, A Christmas Gift for You. This album has it all. It's, it's a sonic masterpiece, the high point of Phil Spector's legendary wall of sound. It's packed with some of the best songs ever written, and each are thoroughly energized to the latest style of 1963. It also embraces the most important element of Christmas music, sadness. It's an unspoken truth. There are some people out there sentimental people, who know that Christmas music at its best is never about the party. It's about being alone after the party. A Christmas Gift for You is widely regarded as the best Christmas album of all time. The one that started the modern era of the enormous, and, and I mean enormous, pop Christmas music canon. But many regard the album as being important outside of that Christmas context. It's in the top 150 of Rolling Stone's best albums of all time. Spectre says that George Harrison once told him A Christmas Gift was his favorite album. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys regularly called it his favorite album. This album matters more outside of the season than any other Christmas album. This is also the pinnacle of an often overlooked era in music, that, that strange period between rock and roll and Beatlemania. We can all imagine what Elvis might have sounded like in 1959. And we can imagine the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1964. But can you imagine what 1960 to 1963 sounds like? It sounds like Phil Spector. 
A Christmas Gift is truly revolutionary for its production. It's a Phil Spector album. You, you won't hear him play or sing on it. It's a producer's album, and it comes from a time when that simply wasn't a thing. There's a long line of music producers who have carved out their own influential sound in pop music. I mean, think about Dr. Dre, Brian Eno, Quincy Jones, Nile Rodgers. Well, in a lot of ways, that line of producers starts with Phil Spector. And Spector is a true weirdo of historic proportions. The, the wigs, the fake English accent, a gun pointed at John Lennon, trapping a princess in his castle, and yes, murder. But that part of the story will have to wait, because right now, we're talking Christmas. There are a lot of great albums out there, many forgotten. The Christmas canon is strange in that it's organized not by date or style or scene or sound, but by content. Christmas music is all genres and all styles. It's silly, sophisticated, ska, Sinatra. It's New York and Vancouver, Guadalajara, Helsinki. It's 300-year-old songs, and it's teenagers singing together in the backseat of a Mustang. Christmas music is all of it. But what it all has in common is that these albums provide a direct line to the past. Nostalgia for sure, but it's also a time to reflect and, and take a breath. The genre, Spectre, and the album, they're all frozen in time. It all stays the same. And that's what people either love or hate about it. But listening to this stuff during the holiday season can help us survey our lives and see how far we've come. Take note of what direction we're headed. That's why, in a lot of ways, Christmas albums are the perfect albums to use as historical artifacts, as tools to help us understand the past. And that's what we do here on Album Epitaph. But in order to appreciate these songs and, and Christmas music in general, in order to hear them differently than they sound at the mall or the, or the dentist's office, well, we've got to take a look at the context A Christmas Gift for You was made in. And we can also have some fun touring some of the great, but less well-known Christmas music out there. There's, there's plenty. But this story all starts on one of the biggest days in modern American history. It's a watershed moment. November 22nd, 1963.
Be My Baby is a revolutionary single from a revolutionary time. It's a song that changed recorded music permanently, mind-blowing when people first heard it. Literally. When Brian Wilson first heard Be My Baby, he had to pull the car over to the side of the road and listen. He basically never got back on the road. This is because Be My Baby is the first song to really use the recording studio as an instrument, as an active part of the sound. The first song that simply wasn't what the girls sounded like in the room, it, it's a recording that actively made the girls sound better than they really were. And the guy who did that better than anyone of the time was Phil Spector. He combined the teenaged subject matter and the energy of rock and roll with the R&B gospel type of vocal group, and he created, for the first time, teen pop. It was massive, and today it still sounds exactly like a hot August evening in the Bronx. Picture a girl group. Matching dresses, sequins I hope. Choreographed snaps, big hair, swaying hips, and three or four young women with pipes that could bring your pastor to his knees. There was a formula, and dozens of these groups made record after record between 1960 and 1963. It's the sound that dominated the charts. This era is often overlooked in music history because it's overshadowed by rock and roll, which had died just a few years earlier in a plane crash and also because of Beatlemania, which erupted in 1964. So, so this girl group thing, it was like a sugar rush. A high, and then a crash. But in between, it was spontaneous, youthful and energetic. It captured that raw emotion that can only come from your first heartbreak, or of finding out that a girl doesn't want to get in the back seat with you. Whatever. Don't pay too much attention to the lyrics, actually. But Spectre owned this era. He found the musicians, the singers, he coordinated the writers, he put them in the studio, and he made it work. The most important name on these singles is not the musician or the singer, it's the producer or the label. By 1963, Spectre was the best, most famous, and richest record producer in the world. He was banging out hits like this. In 1962, Spectre had eight hits in the top 40, many more in the top 100. He had found a way to take pop songs and record them in such a way that made them sound far more powerful than just some girls singing in a room. The production, his, his sound, that's what made the record special. And this sound is called the Wall of Sound, or Spectre Sound. We'll take a close look at it in this episode's big idea. But in this era in music, this teenage soul thing and Spectre's sound, 
his career, it, it all accumulates with a Christmas gift for you. The album is a power move, a gambit. Spectre showing off how he could take old, boring songs, stale and traditional, and use his own singers to make a record of 12 solid hits. If he could do it with these songs, he could do it with anything. Spectre worked on it obsessively for months. He spent more money on the production than anyone dared to think about. Like 56K. And he ended up creating his first long-playing record of big hits. His piece de resistance, his, his moment, his masterpiece. He expected that his career would blast off into the stratosphere. More money, more power. It really is that good of a record. But his timing was as bad as it could get. You see, November 22nd, 1963 is a watershed day in American history. Many people view this as a before and after date. Life was one way before, another way after. Spectre released A Christmas Gift for You on that day. And the Beatles released their first American record on that same day. And it's also the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. After JFK was killed, America went into a difficult period of mourning. A time filled with grief and drama. Radio stations didn't play the usual joyous hits. The consumerism of the season waned. Cocktail parties were cancelled. That year, in, in many ways, Christmas was put on hold. Spectre pulled his masterpiece off the shelves. It didn't get back on the shelves for eight more years. But the assassination should only have killed the album for a year. Why eight? A Christmas Gift was released on the same day the Beatles released their album with the Beatles. And within a few months, the Beatles had played to 73 million people on live TV. And their songs held each of the top five spots on the Billboard charts. That's right. Songs one to five were Beatles songs. And Beatlemania had its own sound. The group, not the producer, was at the center of everything. And kids were falling in love with personalities. The British invasion took all of the momentum out of the girl group's soul and made guys like Spectre sound old. In just one day, the wall of sound went from cutting edge to old-fashioned. And no one falls in love with Phil Spectre. Round, round, get around, I get around, yeah, get around, round, round, I get around, I get around. 1964 is a big year for music, but it's even bigger socially. It's the year of color TV, the Ford Mustang, Mary Poppins and, and Dr. Strangelove. It's, it's the year cigarettes started to become bad for your health, and the year that the average income in the U.S. was $6,000. But don't feel too bad. The average price for a house was thirteen. <laughs> Still, this is all small stuff compared to the aftermath of the JFK assassination and two other generational events. Because it's 1964 that the Civil Rights Act passes 
and Martin Luther King is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, well, at the same time, the war in Vietnam is starting to heat up. Today, many people consider 1964 to be the real start of the 60s, the start of the era that would be dominated by the baby boomers rather than their parents. Because socially and musically, it's a watershed year. You can even pin it all down to that one specific day. And A Christmas Gift for You sounds exactly like the era before November 22, 1963. Terrible luck if you're Phil Spector. Absolutely perfect if you want a Christmas album to become timeless. But wait, wait, don't feel bad for Spectre. <laughs> no, hold off on that for a minute. To really understand this Christmas album, though, you've got to view it as part of the Christmas music canon. And it won't surprise anyone to hear that Christmas music is big. Like, really big. It's, it's far bigger than any style in recorded music history. Many of the top-selling records of all time lists, they exclude Christmas songs because it's not fair to the rest of the songs. Kenny G has been dunking on Bob Dylan like a senior dunking on a freshman. It's, it's just not fair. Elvis sold 20 million copies of his first Christmas album. Just the first one. That's the, the one with the haunting blue Christmas on it. Ben Crosby's White Christmas is the number one selling song of all time. And his version of Silent Night is number three. Have you heard of Mannheim Steamroller? I don't even know if I have, but, but that's weird because they sold something like 23 million Christmas albums. 23 million. I don't even know what they sound like. So folks, okay, there's money here. Phil Spector's album was released in a five-year window that's often considered to be a golden age of Christmas music. It was a popular trend and a moneymaker in the early 60s to make a Christmas album. And the material gave the artist a chance to show a more mature, somber side of their craft. It gave them a reason to stop shaking their hips. Here, here's one of my favorite Christmas records from the R&B star Charles Brown. Bells will be ringing the glad, glad news. Baby's gone. I have no friend to wish me greeting mm, once again. Wise will be singing silent night, Christmas carols by candlelight. Please come on for Christmas. If not for Christmas, by New Year's night. So much of the stuff on the radio today during December was recorded during the early 60s. Doris Day, Vince Guaraldi's Peanuts soundtrack, Ramsey Lewis, The Kingston Trio, Nat King Cole, Chet Akins. Ray Conniff, Peggy Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Ella Fitzgerald, June Christie made a really cool jazz album. Each of these artists made Christmas albums in this era, and they all sold big. It's also the era of the children's TV Christmas special. Peanuts, Rudolph, Frosty, and all that stuff. 
a lot of Christmas classics come from this period. But that style of music is well known, and if you're someone who hates Christmas music, I'm betting it's this stuff that you don't like. And I can see that, because listening to these songs on repeat for a month every year, well, that would drive me nuts too. Let's leave that alone. There's another type of Christmas song that's designed to do the opposite, designed to not sell. The novelty song, the the joke, the purposely awful. And there's a large group of nerds who love to nerd out on this stuff. I think I might be one of them. But these songs are so bad, and I can't recommend listening to any of them. There's no need to hear C-3PO and R2-D2 sing sleigh bells. R2-D2 doesn't even have a voice. And you don't need to listen to songs with titles like I'll Be Stoned for Christmas, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, or, or one of my personal favorites, On Christmas Baby, Please Jingle My Bells. Now, these novelty songs typically work on one of two levels. Either it's a traditional song sung straight, but with a big genre change, like maybe a punk version of Silent Night. Or it's traditional music with super stupid lyrics. Either way, unless you happen to be the loose cannon uncle of your family, you don't like this stuff. So let's leave that alone too. There's another type of Christmas music that I think is often overlooked. Music sincerely made, sung with heart, creative, good music. There's more of this stuff than you might expect. The trick is finding it. It's that space between junk and classics that can be really hard to navigate unless you're willing to be a bin picker in July. It's hard to sort through all of it. But I think these songs are worth some time, so let's go on a tour of good Christmas music here. I mean, it is the season. Here, I bet you've heard this one before. If you're into old school, early days, pre-90s rap, well, this song's just a classic. It's not a novelty song, and it's nothing Frank Sinatra could have done. It's just good 80s rap. Okay, I can I can tell you're looking for something else. So, so here, check out this No Wave gem from Christina. It's a great lost track and a good example of what a wonderful lyricist she was. She sings, My mother said I'm a survivor. I pull together Christmas every year. Something has to last, she said. Once a year, let's have the past. And then one year to reach up high, to hang an angel from the tree became a painful thing. She's lost her wing, my mother said. Things fall apart, but they never leave my heart. Good morning, midnight. It's Christmas. Wing, my mother said. 
Well, that one took a while to grow on me, but, but now I think it's great. Here's another one that takes a few listens. Last Christmas Eve, I didn't feel too jolly. To say the least, I wasn't of good cheer. I seemed to me to be a pointless folly. The price of pleasure had become too dear. And as I watched the shoppers from my window, if you're into alternative or post-punk weirdness, James Chance's Christmas with Satan holds up as another good song. Chance isn't really a Christmas guy at all. I mean, he's more famous for getting into fistfights with his own fans at his own shows, but... But if you like weird and dark improvisation, you'll probably like Christmas with Satan. But if that sounded awful to you, uh, that's okay. Here, try Santa Claus Wants Some Lovin'. one of the most influential guitar players ever, Stevie Ray Vaughan all the way. And this is a pretty hip blues number. It was released in the same way a lot of the best Christmas albums get released. Not as a single, or even as a part of a full Christmas album, but as a part of a record label's compilation. In this case, Stax, the, the best soul label ever, would ask their artists to contribute a track to help showcase their acts. Just a track. And that's a nice situation for a musician. Low expectations and being focused on just one song. All the major labels and many of the indie labels have put together these types of compilation records and it's often where you'll find the best Christmas music. Here's another example from this Stax record, Otis Redding. Otis died just before this song was released. A plane crash. It's one of music's biggest losses. But sometimes Christmas music can be far more political and meaningful than you might think. John Lennon and Yoko Ono released a song called Merry Christmas, The War Is Over, and it it turned out to be one of the most famous anti-war songs. But Christmas music and war have been tied together for many, many years. 
Silent Night has the most famous story. You, you might have heard it. It's the one where in the trenches at the beginning of the First World War in, in 1914, the Pope had called for a Christmas Eve truce. Oddly, he got it. Germans in the trenches sung Silent Night in German. And a hundred meters or so away, in the other trench, Brits responded with their English version. And this went on all night, up and down thousands of miles of trenches. Germans and Brits actually met in no man's land and lit up Christmas trees and danced and sung. They then returned to the trenches. It was the last moment of the 19th century. And here's a song from the Second World War, from 1943. I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow And mistletoe And presents on Released on Victory Records, specifically for American troops on the front, I'll Be Home for Christmas is maybe the saddest song ever recorded. Because what feels at first like a call from a soldier to his family about how he'll be coming home for Christmas, the rug is pulled out from under you in the last line when you find out that it will be only in my dreams. A lot of boys didn't come home. But here's one from Vietnam, and the tone has changed. I guess I'll have to spend my Christmas here in Vietnam out in some foxhole fighting the Viet Cong this old war it just won't end seems I'll never see my friends again it's gonna be a dark dark Christmas for me no yeah dark dark Christmas for me But it's not just wartime politics. Civil rights and Christmas music go together all the time, too. Here's James Brown's Santa Claus Goes Straight to the Ghetto. Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Fill every stocking you find The kids are gonna love you so uh, Leave a toy for Johnny Leave a dog Leave something pretty for Donnie And don't forget about Gary This song is brilliant because it's so subversive. At first it seems like a novelty, like a joke. Go to the ghetto, Santa Claus. But James Brown, he's deadly serious. This comes from the same album he released the crucial Say It Loud, I'm Black, I'm Proud. James Brown's soulful Christmas album matters. But probably the most important element of all great Christmas songs, songs that are not iconic classics and not novelties, but the best of them, is that they all have a hint of sadness. It's the subtle sadness that makes them good. Bill Murray and Paul Schaefer did an awesome version of the Christmas blues, but here's Tom Waits with his song Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis. And it's just about the realest thing I ever heard.
Charlie, I'm pregnant Living on Ninth Street Right above a dirty bookstore Of Euclid Avenue I stopped taking dope Drinking whiskey, my old man plays the trombone, works out at the track. He says that he loves me, even though it's not his baby. He says that raised him up. A year or two ago, I heard about the Hallmark Channel and how it plays essentially the same Christmas movie on repeat for months of the year. And at first I thought that was dumb, but but now I get it. For a lot of people, it feels like the world is unraveling, that that lives are spinning out of control. Anxiety is high, and, and these movies might be an antidote to that. The predictability is the point. The fact that it's something you can count on every year to be friendly and familiar, that might help things feel a little more stable. I get that. And Christmas music fills a similar role, I think. By being something to come back to every year, it can remind us that as much as some things change, some things stay the same. It's a gift. So Phil Spector's Christmas Gift for You was part of a long tradition of Christmas music. But by focusing on modernizing the sound and and adding youth and energy, he opened the doors for a lot of great Christmas music to be made later. Boogie Woogie Santa Claus can trace its origins back to Phil Spector. But before we dive into a Christmas gift for you, we should figure out this Spector guy a bit. Phil Spector was born a Jew on Christmas Day. His parents were cousins, same last name and everything, and he was only about five feet tall. He was bullied incessantly. It seems, to cope, Spectre would invent alternative realities to live in. He once described how, in high school, he trained all the football jocks to get straight A's for protection and and friendship. That seems like a fantasy to me. Everything he says I find tough to believe. But it is true that his father killed himself when Phil was young, and And plainly, the Phil Spector story is not a happy one. And it seems to me like the root of his love for Christmas is buried somewhere in a complex web of family trauma. That it was this man who made the best Christmas record of all time is no surprise to me at all. Throughout his life, Spector loved music and could play and sing a bit. By 17 years old, he produced his first record, To Know Him Is To Love Him. It was 1958. It wasn't long after this record that Spectre had his own record label, Phillies, and he was pumping out hit after hit. Not only did he own the publishing rights, he made the record business swap for a short time to be more about the producer than the singer. It made him a multimillionaire and one of the most powerful people in the music industry, all by the time he was 22. It's during this time that Spectre mastered the wall of sound, 
this completely new way of thinking about recorded music, and, and we're going to focus more on it later. But, but for now, people bought the records to hear the sound. Spectre once said that he was perfect for teenage subject matter because he still had all the insecurities that teenagers did. An insatiable need for respect, power. He wanted to be a king. But he overcompensated and was obnoxious, cocky, or worse. In 1963, he decided that he would take his career to the next level by showcasing his artists and his sound on a long-playing record. He'd make a Christmas album with two goals. First, I think he really did want to make an honest Christmas record with real Christmas spirit while modernizing the sound, and, and that's tough to do. But second, there's ego here. He wanted to show off how he could take old, stuffy songs and make a record chocked full of hits. It was a statement. He could take an old song and any old singer and turn it into millions. But history had other plans. By the time people heard A Christmas Gift for You, Spectre's moment was over. They liked the album, but they didn't care about Spectre, and he never really got over it. The last great song Spectre ever wrote was this one. It was 1964. There's no tenderness like After this hit, it became clear that that music was passing him by. Spectre was so fixated on being the best, the most respected, the king, that he couldn't tolerate coming down off the throne to find something new. So he stayed. He became frozen, stuck in his house with his bodyguards and with his sound and his way of doing things, imprisoned in the castle-like mansion he built. And that's where the horror show begins. There's a whole other side to the Phil Spector story that can't be ignored anymore. Because through the prime of his career, Spector was, was always known as being difficult and power-hungry, an egotistical jerk. Many who worked with him stopped there. But for some people who were closest with him, there were signs that something was wrong in a more serious way. You can hear it in this song, an obscure B-side from 1966. The only song Spector wrote, alone, without a co-writer, and the one he had his young, future wife, Veronica Bennett, from the Ronettes sing. When I saw you, that's when I knew I'd lose my mind over you. By this time, Spectre started to play up the whole mad genius thing. The whole, I'm brilliant, I'm eccentric, this madness you see is actually funny, that's why I treat people so bad. 
And the crazier I get, the more of a genius I am. Instead of addressing his madness, he leaned into it, thinking it was a joke. In 1974, Spectre was in a terrible car accident. He was thrown through the windshield. He died. But he was miraculously brought back to life by a police officer. There were surgeries. 300 stitches to his face. 400 to the back of his head. It was a miracle. But he was deformed and suffered terrible head injuries. Veronica, his wife by this time, was being held against her will in Spectre's castle. He surrounded her with bodyguards, fixed the shades closed, and refused to let her leave. He built a coffin for her and told her that if she left him, he would kill her and keep her in it forever. He liked to play with guns, and he used them, as a lot of small people do, to feel powerful and in control when he wasn't. One Christmas, he went away and came home with a surprise present for Veronica. It was twin boys. He gave children to her as a surprise Christmas present. Eventually, Veronica escaped the house, running barefoot, screaming through the hills of L.A. Man, these stories, the way I heard them, it just gets worse. Spectre unretired a few times. First to work with the Beatles, he produced some Let It Be stuff, and then that morphed into work with John Lennon on Imagine, and later with Yoko Ono. He pulled a gun on Lennon, but Lennon didn't take it seriously. He worked with Leonard Cohen for a short while, and then he tried to work with the Ramones. But by then, pulling guns on people to demand respect was becoming a bit of a habit. The Ramones tell a story of how, when recording their album, Spectre would listen to one chord repeatedly, for 12 hours straight. One chord. Here it is. That chord for two hours in a row. Then four hours. Six. Eight. Ten. Twelve hours. Spectre had froze. Spectre said, I have devils inside that fight me. He was mentally ill, bipolar. Maybe it came from his youth and trauma. Maybe, maybe his head injuries made it worse. Maybe it was the alcohol abuse. Maybe he was just a plain old bad dude. But in 2003, he brought a woman home to his castle. There was a disagreement. He brought out a gun, and she was killed. Spectre's in prison. Another tragedy. So in many ways, Spectre was stuck. Stuck at that one big chord on the Ramones record. Stuck with his wall of sound. Stuck with his style, his way of doing things. Stuck in his castle. He was so hell-bent on being the best that once he got there, he froze. And so 1963 is very much the end of an era. Beatlemania and the civil rights movement, the 60s, the baby boomers, they all define America after 1963. So in many ways, Phil Spector's album was a relic the day it was released. When most people heard it in 1972, it was already heard through nostalgic ears. The album was always from the past. 
But while the album is very backward-looking in that way, it also modernized Christmas music. It gave the genre new life and energy and youth that didn't exist prior. A new soundtrack had been made, one not for the church or some somber reflection at the end of the eve, but for the cocktail party, swing and dance moves, spiked punch. And Phil Spector pulled it all together while mastering his revolutionary wall of sound production, as influential, unique, and lasting as any other production sound since. But that sound and Spector, like all the best Christmas music, is frozen in time. So a Christmas gift for you has a lot to offer, and we can give it a close listen right after this. Album Epitaph is still building some momentum. Our, our first season has eight, eight episodes ready to go, and, and we could use some help reaching fans of music history. If you can think of someone you know that would be interested in this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could share Album Epitaph with them. And it really does make a difference if we get some nice reviews, so please subscribe and review if you like the show. And email us anytime. Info at albumepitaph.com. We'd love to hear from you. I like email, but I miss the postman. Okay, well, let's dig into this thing now. It's one of the most critically acclaimed Christmas albums of all time. Every song is designed to be a hit. It's also the pinnacle of the wall of sound, and it, it modernized traditional tunes by making them youthful and energetic and loud. It's considered a masterpiece by some, but it sounds exactly like 1963. Hold on to your toques. This is Darlene Love here, and... Outside of Spectre, she really is the star of the album. She's got the pipes to rise above this huge wall of sound, and I think it's wild to contrast this to Bing Crosby's version. Now, Spectre knows exactly what he's doing by putting this first. It's a statement track. This isn't some rehash of a popular Christmas standard. What's amazing to me is that, as iconic as the Crosby version is, I mean, he sold 100 million copies of it, Darlene Love's version here doesn't sound like a knockoff. You don't even think about Bing Crosby when you hear this song. I think that's incredible. And Irving Berlin, the writer, he called it the best song he ever wrote. And many others have called it the best song ever written. And it might be the most Christmas song ever. It's, it's non-secular, nostalgic, full of longing and the desire to be at home, loneliness. It was released with a movie. I mean, White Christmas sets the template for it all. It's the second best song on this album. Veronica Bennett of the Ronettes, Veronica, Ron, Ronettes, she's singing here, and, and it's just a classic name of the era. I mean, the girl groups of this era all have names like the Charmettes, the Raindrops, the Jayettes, just goes on and on like that. But Ronnie, she, she was the seductress, the sexy one. She was very modern. She doesn't have the pipes that Darlene Love has, or that gospel power, but, but she has a lot of character. Spectre married her shortly after this. She's Oh, she's the one who would run away barefoot. 
And here and all over the record, you can hear so much stuff going on. The percussion, the jingle bells, glockenspiels, horse hooves, church bells. They, they don't really do this when they make albums anymore. And you know what? Frosty melts, right? All the best Christmas stuff has that type of thing in it. Joy and sorrow. Bob B. Socks, Socks with two X's, by the way, and his band, The Blue Jeans, they handle this song, and it's, it's one of the stranger picks on the album. Certainly Spectre was going for a variety with his song choices here. He's got really old stuff, some silly stuff, some, some classic stuff, even an original composition. The Bells of St. Mary here was one of the least known Christmas songs at the time. It was only done by Clyde McFadder and the Drifters for some obscure B-side, and, and Clyde happened to be one of Spectre's favorite singers, so I guess that's the connection. But there is a real diversity of song choices here. Maybe not all of them good. Spoken word is all over this album. The first cut, this one, the last one. It's cheesy, but it's from the era, and I think it's kind of sincere. Maybe it was cute. I don't know. It is kind of a Christmas music trope, though. You better watch out. Crystals handles this one, and, and that rounds out the introduction to the four groups on the record. These four groups all come from the Phillies label. They're all musicians Spectre had control of. A lot of this sound, this, this big sound we're hearing, is copied straight from Spectre's Da Do Ron Ron single. It came out that same year. But of all the songs on the record, Santa Claus is Coming to Town might be the most influential. Springsteen would but 10 years later, try to capture this sound for Born to Run. The influence of Spectre is really wide. And to pay tribute to Spectre and that sound, Springsteen sings Santa Claus is Coming to Town every year on the road. Sleigh Ride was originally a rondo, a classical music form that emphasizes story rather than repetition. You'd, you'd find them in ballets and things like that. But Spectre takes the sleigh story and chops it up into this pop song structure. And it's been a pop song ever since. While the ring-a-ling-ding-dong-ding and the horse hooves and all of that sounds very youthful and immature, the musicians on this album are anything but. We've been listening to The Wrecking Crew, one of the most legendary groups of studio musicians in, in music history. These guys are the sound of LA pop through the 60s and 70s. They're on a lot of, like, like a lot of records. The Beach Boys, The Birds, Sinatra, Simon and Garfunkel, The Monkees. It's a huge list. 
some of the best musicians in the biz play on this album. For me, Marshmallow World has got to be the strangest choice on the album. It's, it, it's obscure for sure. It might have something to do with post-war ideas about food. I don't know. Marshmallows must have been really modern at the time and like a candy version of Wonder Bread. Super processed, filled with chemicals, patented production methods. It was very 1960s. But in the background of this song is a really nice story. The studio would be filled with musicians and one person there was a young girl named Sherilyn Sarkiskian and she was hoping to sing on the record. At the same time, a young man who was obsessed with the music industry was basically volunteering to work for Spectre in, in hopes of learning as much as possible. It was Sonny Bono. Sonny turned out to be Spectre's gopher, his whipping boy, his assistant. Fix a mic, run a new cable, order dinner, play percussion, take abuse, whatever. Now, Sonny Bono has a subtle confidence about him. He was willing to make himself the butt end of the joke, to play the dunce, to take abuse, as long as he was learning. And the only person in the room who recognized that he wasn't a dunce was that young singer, Sherilyn Sarkiskian. It was the start of Sonny and Cher. We can skip I Saw Mummy Kissing Santa Claus and, and, and jump straight into what might be the maximum Christmas song. Everyone knows it. And it might not be a surprise for you to hear that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was created by an owner of a department store who was looking for a mascot and a theme to bring in shoppers. It's also the song that helped bring the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, back into the modern era by singing all of the classic names from the beginning. This song codifies our Christmas myths. The Night Before Christmas images and the Rudolph stories, they're both here. But what this song really is, is a perfect time to talk about the original singer, my favorite cowboy in music, Mr. Gene Autry. I'm telling you, this guy is amazing. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a... Autry was a lot of things. A railroad man, cowboy, singer, songwriter, World War II pilot. He, he flew over the Himalayas. It was like one of the most dangerous routes of the war. He was a rodeo performer. He sold a hundred million records. He starred in hundreds of movies and TV shows. They made a comic strip about him. Hundreds of issues. He had his own movie production company, a, a radio company, a record label. His number was retired by the LA Angels, the pro baseball club, because he was VP of the league and he owned the team for 35 years. And he created the Cowboy Code. Ten rules. A cowboy must never shoot first, hit a smaller man, or take unfair advantage. A cowboy must be gentle with children, the elderly, and animals. He must not advocate or possess racially or religiously intolerant ideas. He must be a good worker. Th this type of thing. I think I've just decided to live by the cowboy code. But Autry also brought three children's classics to life. He took the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and made it huge. The next year, he did it again for Frosty the Snowman, 
Then he wrote Here Comes Santa Claus and made that a classic too. I don't think there's a musician out there with three songs as well known as his. Autry's horse was named Champion. You can tell a lot about the man by the name of his horse. Some men just have big lives. There are no low points here. Each song could work as a single, and the album is designed that way. It's not here to take you on a journey through Christmas music. It's all here to knock you again and again with modernized Christmas hits. And at this point in the album, it's tiring. Winter Wonderland feels like a lot of the other songs. It's good, but the same. After skipping a parade of wooden soldiers, we finally get to Christmas Baby Please Come Home. It's the standout track, the best on the album, a classic. Why this song, the, the best on the album, the one written in part by Spectre, why this is buried this deep on side two is, is beyond me. I think it should lead off side two at least. This song, and most of the modern songs Spectre recorded, they came out of the Brill Building. The building was similar to Tin Pan Alley. It was a songwriting community where, where people would go to work each day with the aim of writing a hit. A lot of great writers and great songs came out of the Brill Building. Neil Diamond, Carol King, Lieber and Stroller. Not all household names, but, but everyone knows the songs. So you know, if you were to write a song like Christmas Baby Please Come Home, and it were to become a smash hit, you'd be set for life. So would your kids, your grandkids, all the descendants. I mean, I mean, big money. The only problem is that there's hundreds of people trying to do it every year. But the Brill Building writers understood the whole melancholy, sadness, loneliness part of Christmas music, just as well as anyone else. This song is a great example of that. Spectre worked with the husband and wife writing team of Jeff Barry and, and Ellie Greenwich to make it perfect. Rolling Stone called this song the best Christmas song ever. Darlene Love played it on David Letterman for 28 Christmas seasons. It's been covered countless times. Mariah Carey, you 2 all sorts of big names. It's a true Christmas classic. Here Comes Santa Claus follows up this song. It's another Gene Autry classic, and, and while the sequencing of the album, again, it's really questionable, the song does its job. What's nice about Here Comes Santa Claus is that it ends with that traditional Christmas wish. Peace on Earth. 
And finally, we wrap up with this bizarre, egotistical, falsely modest soliloquy over Silent Night. Hello, this is Phil Spector. It is so difficult at this time to say words that would express my feelings about the album to which you have just listened. An album that has been in the planning for many, many months. Oh, man, well... I do think Spectre is being sincere in spots. I mean, he was the first record producer to give credit to the musicians on the record sleeve, and that's kind of cool. But a lot of his message here comes off as oddly false. I don't, I don't want to go too hard on him, though, because he was just 23 years old, and he was kind of going insane. Well, I mean, 23 is so young. Anyhow, I'll leave it at this. I wish the album had a ballad on the first side, and it wrapped up with a straight version of Silent Night here. But this track does do a job. It closes out the album. It makes it feel complete. In the end, Phil Spector created an iconic Christmas album that perfectly captures a whole bunch of important ideas in Christmas music. He took old songs and modernized them. He made them youthful and gave them energy. And he kick-started a still-thriving Christmas music genre. And he was able to do it while capturing the inherent sadness of Christmas music. The bluesiness, loneliness, and the regret that comes during this time of year when it's, it's so natural to reflect. And he captured this over 13 tracks that have become so well-known in our December lives that we might not even notice them. And Christmas music? Well, well I understand if you disagree, but, but for me, it's a real hidden, unheralded section of our music canon. A space only a few weirdos and sentimentals and lonelies go, but, but there's worthwhile music here, and it will be here when you're ready. Because the best Christmas music is frozen in time. Now, throughout this episode, we've talked about the wall of sound, and throughout our season, we've talked about the differences in production and, and technology and the many ways that you can listen to music. In a lot of ways, the medium is the message, and there's a lot worth thinking about here. So that's this episode's big idea, and it's coming up right after this. So it turns out that there's a lot of really smart music minds listening out there, and, and the feedback we've gotten has been really great, so, so thank you. We're collecting all the best ideas and even the criticism for a final errors and omissions episode that will be released at the end of the season. So if you have any burning thoughts, please email us and we will get back to you. Info at albumepitaph.com. Okay, cheers. The medium is the message. It, it's kind of a first-year English lit concept, but, but it is true. My buddy Buckminster was on to something. Because the medium that music is transferred through really does matter. This episode of Album Epitaph's Big Idea connects Buckminster to a Christmas gift for you and explains how the production and sound of albums has changed over time. All right, so, yeah, let's go for it. We should start by defining the wall of sound more specifically. We've talked about it a lot so far, and it's, it's one of the most famous sounds on record, classic of the era, often replicated today in modern music. So, so what actually is it? Well, put simply, it's a very dense, rich, and full sound. Each moment of a song from Spectre feels packed with music. Spectre made this happen a few different ways. First, he recorded with a lot of musicians playing a lot of instruments in the same small room. A lot of records today are made precisely the opposite way. 
But Spectre might have had four guitarists, four pianos, two bassists, 15 people playing percussion, everyone singing harmonies, all at the same time. It's just huge. And because setup and mic placement and coordination of all these people was so complicated, it often took hours of preparation before tape actually began to roll. By that point, all of the instruments and bodies and mics all blended and washed together, creating a singular sound packed with musical information. You often can't separate vocals or instruments in your mind. The song is one thing. The studio is the sound. The Spectre had a few other tricks too, like, like bringing the tape into an echo chamber, usually just an old propane tank buried in the yard, or a, a room with ceramic walls. He would play and re-record tracks, adding layers of echo and reverb to everything. And he would also record parts of songs over and over again, demanding musicians play them in exactly the same way, but then layering these tracks on top of each other, overdubbing. The whole process is amazingly labor-intensive. Spectre was the first to use the studio as its own creative tool. Prior to him, engineers tried to capture the sounds of the band as clearly as they sounded in real life. Spectre is the guy that changed that. He tried to make the band sound better than they did in real life. So when you heard the wall of sound in this era, it was unlike anything else you had ever heard before. And when you hear it today, well, it can still overwhelm you. Your brain's still struggling to pick the song apart to understand it. So the wall of sound can be frustrating at first, but over time, it, it gets really fun. Here's Springsteen doing it. But a crucial part of the Spectre sound is that it's in mono. It simply doesn't work to record this way in stereo because stereo requires separation of instruments so that they can be split up on a horizon. And you can't do that with Spectre. The wall of sound is about depth, not breadth. And I think this matters a lot. At least to my ears, I can't listen to Spectre's album on my computer with earbuds. I just get super overwhelmed and fatigued quickly. There's no space in the song, so... If it's on a small speaker or if it's right in my ear canal, it just wipes me out. Also, there's so much density in the record. You really need to be able to turn it up loudly to hear the whole song. And, and if not, it just sounds muddy or, or weak. But if you can listen to a mono version with big speakers, the record changes completely. It becomes luxurious, deep, and interesting. It rewards repeated listens. You get drawn into the album. I heard Neil Young talk about mono once. He, he explained that while stereo can be interesting with sounds popping up all over the place, kind of surprising you, mono has advantages too. Mainly, mono tends to draw the listener in rather than push them back. If you've put on a loud record from the 80s, you might find that it sort of pushes you around. But if listening to mono from the 60s, well, you can actually watch people's bodies lean into the speaker. Phil Spector was all about that. He wore a famous back-to-mono button and advocated for depth and warmth from mono rather than left-channel, right-channel gimmicks. Now, it's not true that mono is better than stereo. Not, not at all. It's just that certain stuff sounds better listened to through certain mediums. I hear a lot of chatter about the quality of a file. Like, how many bits and bytes are streamed at a certain rate. 
Lots of people like to debate the science of sound waves from vinyl records. And in general, I think it's great that we're seeing better quality MP3s and more high quality files and streaming. It's been a long time coming. But I actually think that this whole conversation misses the point. Instead of worrying about bits and bytes, I think we should be thinking about the listening experience. There are a lot of good ways to listen to music, and, and they're all good for different things. Metal works great in the car. That's the only place it works for me. Earbuds, not so much. But I walk Ernie the dog every night while streaming a new album off Tidal. It, it's awesome. So you see what I mean? They all have trade-offs. I think it's useful to be conscious of the trade-offs. So let's survey some of these. But as we do, we will see that even more interesting than the trade-offs is how some artists make albums with a particular medium in mind. And very often, music will be far more enjoyable if you listen to it through the medium it was designed for. Here's a, here's a great example. Still Snoop Dogg and Guess who's back? Still doing that shit, Andre? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Check me out. It's still Dre Day. Uh, AK. Uh, Though I roam the block, can't keep it home a lot. Cause when I frequent the spots that I'm known to rock, you hear the bass from the truck. So in terms of format, there's only one way to hear Dre's 2001. You absolutely must be in a 20-year-old Toyota Tracel with two 10-inch subs in the back. And you absolutely must be slow cruising some teens smoking on the corner, and you absolutely must rattle and buzz away down the block. <laughs> well, I'm kind of joking. Kind of. Dr. Dre is one of the most important music producers in pop music history, and he really did make the album for that type of listening experience. Those subs, that drive, the slow roll, the music is all designed for that format in the same way that ACDC designs their music for hockey arenas. If you've only heard Dr. Dre through YouTube on your computer, uh, you've never really heard 2001. This era in rap is all about getting the biggest bottom end you can get. Bass that doesn't just fill your ears, but bass that punches you in the gut, shakes your chest. It's a physical sensation. And that piano lick is really high in the mix, easily cutting through all of that bass. Your tweeters and your subs got a workout in this format. The middle of the mix is left empty, except for the vocal. And that was critical too, because these rappers were really good and fast and articulate and dynamic. And, and if the mids were crowded with music, it would be hard to distinguish what the rapper was doing. Certain stereos do a better job of this than others. The medium is the message. <laughs> I'd love to drive around in that old Tricell just one more time. But Darlene loves Christmas Baby Please Come Home. It would sound terrible in that old Tracel. Just terrible. Because Spectre put Darlene Love square in the middle of a huge swath of sound in the middle of the mix. A Christmas gift for you? It would be such a mess in that old Tracel. The wrong parts of the track would be emphasized. So let's take a look at a few different mediums through five different iconic artists. If Spectre is designed for monophonic vinyl and a big home stereo, and Dre 2001 is designed for subs and tweeters in a car? Well, what other mediums are out there? I go out walking after midnight Out in the moonlight 
This is Patsy Cline and her classic country and western sound from the 50s. This music is designed for the radio. In terms of sound, those those piercing highs, I, I know, they can sometimes sound like nails on a chalkboard, but, but those highs cut through a low-quality radio signal beautifully. On earbuds, this would drive me nuts, but on a porch with a single speaker tuned to Mountain Town 1430 radio, it's perfect. And the contrast between those highs and the her lower contra-alto voice, well, that's what makes country and western work. And there's something else about the radio and country music. Country music is about being lonesome. And the radio has a weird way of making you feel less alone. The fact that there's a person out there who chose the song, or that there are others far away listening with you, it can make you feel less alone. Here's something completely different. This modern mix is is perfect for hi-fi headphones. There are a lot of people out there who love to sit and listen with super headphones on, and a song like this, mixed all over the place with hugely diverse sounds, it's just so entertaining when listened this way. You just enter an entirely different world. Headphones really show off the dynamic, layered, and and separated sounds on this Alt-J album. But listening to music like this is also antisocial. It's a solo listening experience. The Sony Walkman in 1980 actually started that whole thing. Music as a tool to remove yourself from the surroundings. When you're in a city and on a commute, it's just such a relief to carve out a, a bit of your own world. I bet we could track music becoming more inward-looking, from the Walkman right to the iPod. One reason why the Edge's guitar playing works so well here is that the space and the repetition on U2 records is perfectly designed for the huge stadium shows they play. There's a certain music that just just works well in front of 30,000 people. U2 can play beautiful acoustic ballads as well as anyone out there, but those songs tend to not work very well in a soccer stadium.
Zeppelin is designed for vinyl. For systems with huge speakers, the bigger the better. If you haven't heard Zeppelin this way, you haven't heard them. You need the space and the power to appreciate how big these drums sound. The speakers of the 70s were big, a lot bigger than speakers today, and they could move a lot of air. But the flip side is that those speakers weren't as punchy or responsive as modern subwoofers are today. So even really high-quality modern speakers, they might not sound as good as average speakers from the 70s did when you listen to this, When the Levee Breaks. But I bet those 70s boxes, I bet they couldn't handle electronic music today. Zeppelin wasn't a featherweight peppering you with jabs. Zeppelin was a heavyweight knocking you to the mat. So you found this CD in the glove box. I saw you put it in. Turn it up. Why are you driving so fast? You're just going to pick up the kids from school. And why are you ugly crying in your minivan? <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Yes, you're, you're going to take the long way there. You know the words to this one. Yeah, you can feel it. Well, can you feel it? Well, I'm here to remind you of a mess you left when you went away. It's not a fair to deny me of a cross-eyed bear. Check it to me. You, you, you I'm so hyped right now. That's a maximum CD. And there are tons of these things. There are rap fanatics from the 80s who insist that the only way to listen to real rap is on cassette, on a boombox. There's a dude who makes funky video game music and only releases it on Sega cartridges. He thinks that's where it's best. There are super fans of the Beatles who insist that Rubber Soul sounds like garbage in stereo. <laughs> but it's still like one of the best ever, so. There's people who need disco to be really, really loud, just to be reminded of why they loved it in the first place. We, we could go on and on. The medium matters. But there's a monkey wrench with all of this, though. What does an artist do if they have a decades-long career? Do they modernize, change, or do they keep continuity? What do they do if they can't sell out stadiums anymore, and, and do they remaster their old stuff to sound good on modern tech? Well... That's an, another big idea for another day. Until then, just know that Metallica has probably struggled with these questions more than any other band. It gets pretty heated in Metallica forums. It can be a tough call. Continuity or change. Tough for us all. Phil Spector made a classic record as one of the most important producers in history. But he locked himself in and refused to change. The music world left him behind. But ironically, that is exactly why A Christmas Gift for You works so well as a Christmas album. It is a tough call. So let's go back there to wrap things up. Let's go back to Snow Falling. Spectre created a Christmas record in exactly the right and exactly the wrong time. Wrong in that his masterpiece was buried in the fallout of the JFK assassination, and wrong in how the Beatles would make his sound feel dated just a month later. 
but right in that it represents that strange era in between Elvis and the Beatles. Those four years in that distinctive teenage love girl group sound of the early 60s. And it turned out to be right for another reason as well. When it finally got to market in the 70s, the album was already a relic of the past, immediately nostalgic, already old. And for a Christmas album, it just doesn't get any better. What makes a Christmas gift for you such a classic is that it's frozen in time. Because it can be nice to turn to something each year which remains fixed, which can ground us and and remind us that though some things never stay the same, some things never change. It can be a real anxiety reducer, like snowballing. So whether it's Darlene Love blasting on overhead speakers at the mall, or a quirky reggae number on a playlist, or Vince Guaraldi's Peanuts soundtrack as you do Christmas dinner dishes, Christmas music really does have a way of helping you recognize that you've, you've held the household together for another Christmas dinner, for another year. Yeah, I'm invested. Now, I think Christmas is about wishes. A kid wishing for a baseball mitt or, or an iPod, but, but wishes from us, too. And I, I know it's cheesy, and I'm sorry, but, but every year I really do take a moment to think about what I wish for. And if I think hard, I always come back to the same place. Peace on earth and goodwill towards man. And the knowledge that that many others have wished and will wish for that same thing, it makes it less cheesy for me. I also want to acknowledge that, that it's been a tough year for many. That in the battle of getting through these recent challenges, it's been hard to get your head up and and look around and see that we're not alone in our communities. We are together. This year, I wish what I always wish, but harder. Merry Christmas, everyone.